and there's actually no seatbelts in these particular UN armoured vehicles. And so I was right. thrown thrown forward into the bulletproof windscreen of my armoured vehicle and that broke five vertebrae in my back. There were two vertebrae that were crushed, three more were fractured. You know, there was a number of internal injuries. Hi everyone, I'm Mel Gordon, Deputy Editor of Marie Claire and welcome to the latest episode of Finding Fearless with Marie Claire. Retired Army Major Matina Jewell is not just the kind of soldier every country is proud to have. She's the kind of woman every female aspires to be. Fearless, honourable, brave and dignified. But her career came with a big price, narrowly avoiding losing her life several times, suffering painful physical injuries and heartbreaking personal ones. She has rebuilt herself both physically and emotionally and has now become one of the top female leadership speakers in Australia. Now conquering motherhood, she is teaching girls and women of the future to live fearlessly and boldly. Please welcome, via phone line, the inspiring Matina Jewell. Matina Jewell, welcome to Finding Fearless. Thanks so much, Mel, for having me on your show. No worries. So you grew up in the laid-back Byron Bay hinterlands and then you only decided to join the Army when you were 17. What made you want to join? Was there like a family history or anything like that? My grandfather had served in World War II um, and he'd volunteered to serve in the war, much uh, mm-hmm. to my to my nan was upset with that, that she had three children at the time and uh, and a general store to then take over and run. Mm-hmm. But other than that, then, you know, and my grandfather never talked about his experiences during the war. So yeah. there wasn't really a strong military connection. Yeah. And obviously having grown up in the Byron Bay region, that uh, wasn't the most popular career path, especially <laughs> for a woman. <laughs> yeah, so what made and, you uh, want to take go down that path? One of the most driving forces was, you know, I'd seen my parents struggle financially to put my older brother through university. I'd done very well with my with my studies, so I did want to go to university and continue my education, but I, I needed a scholarship component. At 17, I wanted to be financially independent. Yeah. So my parents didn't have to work so hard just to give me those opportunities. So I went looking for a career, and much to my parents' dismay when I announced that I was going to head off to the Australian Defence Force Academy where I could do my university studies through University of New South Wales and also my military uh, officer training. Uh, And that's what I did when I was 17 when I finished Year 12 and uh, that's the path that kind of got me into the military. Um, You were a prodigious military student. Obviously the ADF considered you a talent. Can you kind of go through some of the firsts that you achieved as a young female soldier? Yeah, I was was very fortunate, I guess, when um, I joined the military um, back in sort of 1994, there'd been enough women before me that had, you know, sort of, you know, had probably much tougher experiences than what I had and had paved a way for probably mm-hmm. of my generation to come through and actually be able to do, achieve a number of firsts mm-hmm. for women across defence. And also had, you know, incredible men in senior roles who were really understanding the need to have a more diverse uh, workforce uh, from a military perspective. So yeah. um, I was very fortunate to uh, to be the first woman in, in the Australian Army to qualify as a Navy diver. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also trained to fast rope out of helicopters. And fast roping is normally only a special forces skill in the Australian Army. So uh, as, a, as a female officer, it was something that I never expected to be asked to do during my career. So special waivers had to be signed off by the Chief of the Defence Force at the time really? <laughs> to, to allow me to do this on operations in the Middle East. So it was straight after September 11th and I was working with the American Navy SEALs. And our operations at the time, our missions was to do boarding smuggler ships in the North Arabian Gulf. So it's basically leaping out of a helicopter down a rope, sliding down a rope, 
just with your hands and feet. So there's there's no safety equipment at all. So there's not even a repellent yeah. harness, uh, no great big safety net that's going to break your fall if you really stuff that one up. And for me, I'm terrified of heights. <laughs> and so... <laughs> great. The whole concept of having to do this, you know, it just seemed really quite stupid to get out of a perfectly safe helicopter (laughs) in this manner, particularly when we're wearing all of our combat gear, so body armour and weapons. But, you know, there was a a requirement for me to have that skill Mm. on operation, so I didn't really have time to think about it. It was just sort of, you need to train this skill, we've signed waivers, off you go and get the job done. And by the way, you've got a whole team looking at you to set that example. And I'm still terrified of heights, and I think that's probably one of the lessons out of this is that, you know, well, when it comes to tackling fear, like fear is a natural, normal response to certain situations where we're being challenged or if we're being pushed out of our, you know, our comfort zones. Mm. So it's not about removing fear altogether. You're going to have to have fearful situations. And fear is a vital skill, you know, in my experiences of being on battlefields and in war zones. You know, fear is not a bad thing. You want fear, but you need to learn how to manage that fear and be able to sit with that emotion, kind yeah. of have that raw emotion that you can can sit with and then find a way to push through. Uh, and and for me, it was about mindset. It was about accepting that I have fear around what I'm doing, but the best learning opportunity comes from those situations where we are actually challenged. Sometimes as a leader, having an entire team to worry about that kind of shifts your focus away from yourself. And I found that as actually a valuable asset, mm. that it would, uh, you know, take my focus to worry about my what I was feeling myself and almost sort of disassociate from that emotion as well as shifting my mindset that this is a positive thing. Even if I screw this up monumentally (laughs) and it's a complete failure, I'll actually always learn something from those experiences. So I think it's about just giving ourselves permission to have a go at those new things, sit with the fear, accept it. My failures have actually been the best learning experiences I've had in my life. You know, those failures kind of tend to embed very deeply when we learn those and remember those lessons for a really long time. So, um, But don't you reckon you can only do that in an environment that allows you to fail? You know what I mean? Like if you've got some asshole boss or something above you who who (laughs) says, you know, plays all the rhetoric around, you know, yeah, it's good to fail (laughs) and all that kind of thing. But then if you actually do um, screw up something, then they go off their rocker. And I guess that's around, you know, um, educating our leaders to create those cultures where we do sort of support and empower people to to at least have a go at yeah. things and, and accept that we're human. We're not going to get it right every time. So it's kind of unrealistic to set those expectations that we're going to, you know, of our team and of ourselves that we're going to nail it every single time. But I guess the environments that I've worked in, the biggest problem is when people do become immobilised by fear. And if I look back at some of those mm. scenarios that I've faced across 15 years in the military, Um, When I was on a representation role working with the United Nations Mm. in Syria and then Lebanon, I was actually, you know, stuck in the middle of the 2006 Lebanon war. I had a scenario where I was actually suddenly thrown into this leadership position where I I had to get a convoy of armoured vehicles through the war zone from my patrol base through the UN headquarters. And normally that transit would take you only about two hours to complete that drive. But Mm -hmm. at this stage of the war, Israel had actually commenced its ground invasion into southern Lebanon. Yeah. And the roads that could get me to the headquarters parallel the border. So, of course, I'm in the thick of the action, you know. Uh, and so that two-hour drive took me two days under heavy fire from both sides of the war, from the Hezbollah yeah. and uh, Israel. And I was suddenly put in command of a convoy of armoured vehicles, two armoured personnel carriers and 16 Indian and Ghanaian infantry soldiers that I'd never met before, let alone worked with or, you know, had an understanding of their skills and experience levels. So it's this sudden leadership position where you're having to group up um, 
face a lot of fears and, and really valid fears in that situation of life and death decisions. Yeah. But often in those moments, you know, we tend to a point where we were under attack from Israeli fighter jets. I had to be decisive about what I was doing. And the worst thing I could have done at that moment was make no decision, be, become immobilised by the fear. Yeah. And so I guess in the military, we train our people, we put them under those very high pressure situations in training so that hopefully when you're faced with the real thing that you those skills will will kick in and you'll at least be able to keep making decisions because if we have the momentum in our decision capacity even if we make the wrong decision we can at least kind of get back on track and make another decision to to find our way forward for sure i know that that particular exercise was like a was really a life-changing event for you you're over there on a peacekeeping mission yeah that's right. So this was actually my fifth um, deployment with the Australian Defence Force where I was actually representing Australia mm-hmm. with the United Nations. It was kind of my reward posting. Yeah. <laughs> All the good behaviour I'd done before that. <laughs> so I was uh, selected to represent Australia for 13 months. I spent the first seven months of that in Syria mm-hmm. and the last six months working in Lebanon. And it was a UN force that consisted of military personnel from over 23 different countries. Mm-hmm. I was the only Australian at both my bases in Syria and Lebanon, but I was also the only woman working in those UN forces in those pat- entire patrol regions of my team. So, you know, some extra challenges potentially from what the guys had in terms of those culture, gender, uh, even within the UN force that I was working in, many of the nationalities I was serving with don't allow women to serve in their own countries. So you've got to, got to break through a lot of those barriers just to, you like know, what, day what one of example? working these teams. What was an example? Or did you come up against any of that kind of... Um you know, difference from from a cultural point of view? Yeah, well, look, for my very first patrol in, in Syria, so in, in that country, we'd only send two peacekeepers out to the bases at a time and you'd go for a week at a time. And one would stay on the base for the day, the other would uh, patrol the regions. And mm-hmm. whoever stayed on the base would be required to put on the evening meal for your teammate that's been out patrolling all day. Yeah. Um, but I had an Argentinian teammate and he was like, fantastic. I've got a woman. Uh, you're going to cook for me every night of oh. the week. <laughs> and I just laughed at him and said, dude, you just clearly have not worked with an Aussie chick before. <laughs> there is no way in hell <laughs> that's going to happen. So, you know, I found that I had to be quite firm and strong about setting those boundaries and uh, and setting up trust and respect. And I guess if, if anything I learned from my career as being a woman in a very male-dominated environment, every time I posted into a new unit, I found that I had to work so much harder than my male colleagues mm. to earn that trust and respect from my own team. During my career in the military, I found that very frustrating, quite unfair. Mm. <laughs> but As- now in hindsight, I think you know, yeah. I've got that. Distance from my career, yeah, yeah. I can look back and say that was actually a gift yeah. because I think, you know, as a to be a great leader, you know, trust and respect is something you earn. It's not something you sit behind your job title, uh, your role, and, and your position or, or rank. And particularly in my circumstances, where I'm asking my team to put literally put their life in my hands, then that's a trust level that I think you need to earn rather than just to assume that you have. Um, just getting back to that, the situation that was happening in the Middle East, can you explain what, what happened to you there and how um, it became yeah. so life-changing? Yeah, absolutely. So after my seven months in Syria, which, you know, in hindsight was quite uneventful <laughs> compared to <laughs> what yeah, lay ahead of me right. in Lebanon. Uh, so I transferred over to the, the UN force operating in Lebanon and I was sent out to patrol base Kiam which was considered one of the most dangerous of all the UN bases in the entire Middle East. So mm. I really got a bit of a short straw <laughs> when yeah. I was sent out there to work. 
And because it was right at the junction of those countries and it was surrounded by Hezbollah, it's kind of the Hezbollah stronghold in Lebanon. Mm. Um, there were many events, even well before the war, um, where we're in life-threatening situations of having Hezbollah, you know, hold us with you know AK-47 weapons at our heads. I had thankfully learnt to speak Arabic before I deployed on this mission. Handy. Uh, and so knowing that I'd spend 13 months in two Arab countries before I deployed back to the UN, I, you know, I decided I, I needed something extra than what I'd had in Q8 years earlier. And so I, I'd learnt that Arabic, which you know actually goes on to literally save my life during the war. But even leading up to the war, it made me a far more effective peacekeeper. So how did this language skill help you when you were practically about to die, really? Yeah, so I only had two weeks left of this entire 13 months before I was due to return home to Australia, which is always the way, right? It's kind of like Murphy's Law. I know. It's like every Hollywood movie. I was about to come back the next day, you know. Yeah. Well, the very next day I was supposed to come off the base and I was going to take my boyfriend, now husband, on holidays to Egypt because, you know, I only had this couple of weeks left um, to fulfil of the posting. Right. And, And, you know, as it turns out, 24 hours before that happens, the Hezbollah start this massive war with Israel. And as I said, I'm right at the junction at that that patrol base. We're unarmed. Mm, And so in a split second, we went from monitoring a sort of a peace agreement to being under attack. Yeah. And we had so many new misses uh, at Qiyam during those first few weeks of the war. You weren't actually there at the time, were you? Yes, I was at the base at the time. I was out patrolling, but we got mm-hmm. this uh, May Day alert over the radio mm-hmm. to return to your closest base. And so I got back to patrol base Kiam within about half an hour of the war breaking out. Yeah. But like you'd actually left going, you were coming back. After two weeks at the base, I was then tasked to command a convoy through the war zone to the UN headquarters. Yep. And that was um, two armoured personnel carriers and 16 Indian and Ghanaian infantry soldiers. And that two-hour drive, as I said, you know, ended up yep. taking over two days under heavy fire. Yeah. And on that second day, just before I got into headquarters, we were making high speeds. And, you know, those kind of crazy scenes on the roads of Lebanon. There were there were panicked civilian drivers. You know, of course, yeah. they're also trying to get the shelter. And I was on the radio to headquarters. I didn't foresee my driver was about to do evasive manoeuvring. And there's actually no seatbelts in these particular UN armoured vehicles. And so I was right. thrown thrown forward into the bulletproof windscreen of my armoured vehicle and that broke five vertebrae in my back. There were two vertebrae that were crushed, three more were fractured. Oh, my god! I ruptured my diaphragm. You know, there was a number of internal injuries. But you um, didn't know that at the time, hey? No. I mean, you know, you I knew, knew that I was something in was significant wrong. pain. Yeah. 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 But I certainly didn't know the extent. And I guess adrenaline is such a fantastic drug that the yeah. body makes. It took 15 days to actually get home to, to Australia to commence treatment for those spinal injuries. So once I got into the headquarters, <sighs> we found that all the UN Medivac failed during this particular war. So I spent two days on a tiled floor, still <sighs> getting bombed, uh, with no pain relief, um, oh while gosh. the UN's scrambling, trying to come up with another way of getting me to a hospital for treatment. Once the adrenaline started to wear off, I found that I could no longer stand up without yeah. like quite considerable discomfort. So more and more I was having to bend forward before, you know, and then I was kind of crumpled forward in, in pain and that numb tingling sensation. That was the thing that probably gave me the most fear because it's like if, I, if I'm losing feeling, that's probably the spinal cord that's affected at yeah. the moment of what's happening. So How terrifying. Um, and we're still getting bombed. You know, the fighter jets are coming in. We've got, and we've actually got all the families and the children of the UN force, and still being in a leadership 
role in that. I'm still having to make decisions even though I'm on the floor in <laughs> agony. <laughs> Bloody hell. Having to try and get people to safety, oh uh, which in God. some ways was beneficial that it sort of distracted me from my own um, circumstances. And I guess, you know, if we talk about fears, my, my biggest fear as an officer in the military was not being injured or killed myself, but actually making a decision that led to the injury or deaths of one of my soldiers. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes leadership is actually <laughs> useful in that it, you know, you can remove your own emotions from those situations. And so how the hell did you, did you, was it much longer until you made it back to Australia? Two days later, we were actually all then transferred onto a ship that was evacuating refugees out of Lebanon. The Australian Embassy had worked with the UN to try and facilitate. So there was a thousand refugees that we Gosh. ended up getting on a boat um, across to Cyprus. So that was 20 hours by boat and I assume you're across on a, the Mediterranean Sea. And you're, you're, you'd be on a stretcher, yeah? You're not like, you know, mobile. Yes, I'm on, I'm on a stretcher by this stage. But um, let's just say the medivac didn't quite go to plan. Oh, really? In that, uh, yeah, they, they, they ran the stretcher three times into the back of the ambulance <laughs> um, expecting the legs to automatically collapse. But because they had the stretcher back to front, the wheels couldn't, um, the legs couldn't collapse down and roll oh. into the, the tray of the ambulance. So I was in far more significant pain by that stage. Yeah. And um, then the journey from the headquarters down to the, the port to get on the, the refugee ship, because the stretch was in back to front, the stretcher kept slamming from side to side because it couldn't lock into the grooves properly in the floor of the ambulance. So it's kind of at that stage that I've realised I can see what the problem is here. I'm in back to front, which also means the collapsible legs won't operate properly yeah. <laughs> when we get to the port and tier. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, the, the soldier pulling me out of the ambulance didn't understand when I was saying, stop, stop, stop. So I was dropped, uh, strapped oh. into the stretcher from the height of the ambulance down onto the bitumen road, oh. which probably didn't help my injuries. But yeah. at least once we got to the, the ship to evacuate, there was a British doctor on board who had morphine, and I've never been so happy to see a doctor <laughs> in my life. So from Cyprus was then taken to Germany, and in, in Germany I was actually put onto a Qantas commercial aircraft, like a normal right. passenger aircraft, and I've got a doctor and paramedic flying with me by this stage, thankfully. Mm -hmm. So they've actually taken me in the catering carts, um, the, the hoist <laughs> that brings the food onto the aircraft. Oh, my God. <laughs> and we've been told that they would remove nine seats out of the economy cabin so that the stretcher and I could be bolted into the aircraft and that the plane would be completely empty. We'd have heaps of time to load. But once we got onto the plane, we realised two things. That firstly, the plane was fully loaded. There was 450 passengers all waiting for me to take off. Oh, my God. And secondly, the seats hadn't been removed. So, so where they were had, you? They had no option but to put the stretcher and I on top of the headrests of the seats so like literally oh. if you can imagine it was like my face was just underneath the overhead locker so I was sort of jammed in between the headrests next time you get it on flight Mel just have a look at the difference oh. between the headrests and uh, the overhead lockers and I flew like that from Germany to Singapore to Sydney some oh, 26 28 oh hours God. and that, like in that in that same period you found out about what happened to your my your teammates. mates that were mm -hmm. back on the base so you basically referred to as brothers what yeah, so tell me what, know, what tell me what happened there yeah i guess you know i'd spent 13 months working with these men um you know in a very high risk situation where you're literally putting your life in each other's hands so i think 
those work environments with huge risk attached where you, where you have to rely on each other so so heavily, you do create very strong bonds between people. So I, I do think of them more than just like work colleagues, that they are like brothers to me. Yeah. And when I left them at the base to command that convoy through the war zone, it was when I got to Cyprus uh, that I uh, found the news that an Israeli fighter jet had actually dropped a thousand pound bomb, which was a, a laser guided bomb, a direct hit on the bunker of the base that I'd just left. And that instantly killed all four of my teammates who were manning the base. Unbelievable, Maddie. Did you did you kind of recognise that at the time? Or, I mean, like you were in your own serious well, injuries and everything. Like, did that even hit you? It was quite surreal, Mel. I was, I was in Cyprus in hospital at this stage and it was on the news. So Gosh. I found out via CNN. So, oh. and... I couldn't understand the language because it was um, in foreign language, but I could see the images. Yeah, um, right. And I knew that it was my base and it and it looked like there would be no survivors from what was left of the base. So in a thousand pound bomb, you know, that they're massive bombs, they'll destroy sort of five, ten storey buildings. So it was it was a very effective impact into Kiam, into that bunker. And because I'd had no contact from my own leaders like my own Australian commander none of the UN command ever thought to contact me about the deaths of my team yeah um and so it kind of compounded that feeling of isolation for me that I've now not only injured but I've been separated from the rest of of the force of the UN force that peacekeeping force yeah and so I felt I've never felt more alone than I did in that hospital in Cyprus watching those images and just trying to make it comprehend and resonate in my head as an actual real event rather than some sort of terrible movie that yeah. I, you know, I couldn't make sense of. That's right. And, and especially so, on, you know, seeing it on CNN, it, it, it just looks like every piece of news footage that you've seen in your life. So you can't even, you can't literally even put yourself there. Like it does seem far, it seems foreign. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the, the lessons out of that is for, you know, for all leaders, you know, in these times of crisis in our lives, that we all are going to have crisis at some point. You know, we need to communicate. It's so important to communicate with our people during those crisis moments. Um, you know, we often get focused on operations or, you know, just getting in and doing things, but it's actually about taking those few moments to talk to people it's so um, true. to get you through. Yeah, I mean, well, we've all just recently seen that with the bushfires, haven't we? The bushfires, like, absolutely. Yeah, about you know. the leadership that didn't happen, <laughs> really. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that's where that's where those incredible, charismatic, wonderful leaders stand up. Mm. Um, well, you know, like the New Zealand Prime Minister, you look at the difference of her empathy, raw honesty, yeah. um, communication skills in those crisis moments compared to, to where we haven't done it so well. Um, you know, that's the skill set that, you know, we want to encourage in our leaders to have that vulnerability and, um, and, and take the time to communicate and connect with people on a human heart level. Do, do you actually think that you can teach that? Like, or, or, or have there been people you just thought, no, that guy's always going to be a dickhead? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there's obviously people that are, their personality type and their, and their character leads them to be far more effective in that but but yeah. anyone can learn these skills and I think more and more our workplaces our younger people coming through the things they want from their leaders is to know that they care mm. they want they want a job where they feel that it's like purposeful and meaningful mm. um it's not just about you know 
the pay and the and the prestige is there's the workplace is shifting and changing so much that I think the successful companies and successful leaders within them that are moving forward are those that are working really hard on these soft skills because that's more and more what people are wanting. I know when you came back, like you had um, a really hard time mentally. You know, it was compounded by all the whole thing that happened with your base and losing all of your crew. But also, I think like you came back, and we obviously would have you would have had. PTSD, you would have had, and probably survivor's guilt as well, yeah? Absolutely. Do, do, do you think, tell me about how you then, like, overcome those kind of, like, I just I just know there's so many people who've got, um, you know, mental health problems and they don't either, don't feel like they'll ever be back to their usual selves again or they feel like they, they undervalue themselves in a way so that they never put themselves forward for any meaningful work again. Like I'm interested to know how you overcame those kind of, which would have been new fears really, and how mm. you work through them to like to then create a new life for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I think, Mel, for me, I lost so much of myself in a split second. You know, I, yeah. I lost my career. I lost my physical ability. I was, I was in a spinal brace for a year. I still need three or four treatment sessions a week to keep the mobility I have. So I had quite right. significant injuries. I, I did have, you said, um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And that survival guilt was probably one of the toughest things I had to work through of that, you know, the resentment that I was still alive, that my teammates, you know, had all died during this war. And I'd had so many new misses that are unexplainable as to how I'm still here. Yeah. And had to kind of process through all of that. And I guess you're right in that it was a real fear that, you know, once I lost my career and I had no say in that decision to be medically discharged. In fact, I fought the discharge. Mm. I had it delayed three times, right. mainly because I felt I still had skills to offer the Defence Force. For sure. and, um, I spoke three languages. I've been on all these missions. I've done a number of firsts for the Defence Force that just because I couldn't pass the fitness test, I felt I still still had something to give back to the organisation. But our rules at that time were so stringent around if you couldn't pass the fitness test, that that was it, you were out. Right. We did have that change later as I became an advisor of the Prime Ministerial Advisory Council on Defence and Veteran Issues and we were able to build into that some flexibility, you know, in terms of waivers for critical skill sets. That's fantastic. So that has changed. Yeah, which, you know, you know, obviously, you know, I felt quite <laughs> um, a relief of being able to make something positive out of for that sure. situation, even for though sure. it didn't help me, but to help yeah. others. Yeah. But, you know, at the time when I lost kind of everything, I had this fear as to who was Martina Jewell if I took all of those labels off myself, that I was yeah. no longer a Navy diver, I was no longer a major, an amphibious warfare commander, all of those things that I think all of us, you know, some, some ways we're guilty of viewing ourselves and our own identity through either our work or, or who we see ourselves. So I, For sure. I had to work hard at trying to reestablish who I was when all that was sort of paired and stripped back. How'd you do that? Look, it wasn't an easy path. It was it was many years of kind of dark, depressive days. And I'd actually got into this pretty terrible, you know, depressive cycle where I would, after Clint had gone off to his corporate job each morning, I'd go and put myself in the shower in the fetal position and just bawl my eyes out and think, you know, have these well with me moments is why has all this yeah. happened to me? Yeah. Um, and the way that I kind of broke through and and turned that around and I think the biggest problem is depression like we actually become quite um, self-obsessed in depression you kind of you can't see what's happening outside of yourself yeah Um, but I did have this moment of sort of clarity of understanding of like what I was putting everyone else through and in particular for Clint and so I decided I needed to find one small thing that I could could achieve 
a new sense of purpose, finding a new role of something, just a really small little thing that I could achieve that day and keep building on very small steps. So yeah. I made a decision that the next morning I'd get up and I would iron Clint a business shirt before he went off to his corporate job. Uh-huh. And that small act, you know, gave me some self-confidence that I still had something of value to add and particularly because it helped somebody else in yeah. that environment. It wasn't just for me. Yeah. And so, you know, I then it's just set true. about, you know, small tasks and even the the wins that it's so working on the Prime Minister's Advisory Council, a number of different government advisory roles that I've done with the Suicide Prevention and Anzac Commission, et cetera, I couldn't make changes just for myself. I just couldn't find the strength or the courage to do it. But I knew at my rank I was at least able to have meetings with the Prime Minister and the Ministers of Defence and Veteran Affairs, but my, my soldiers wouldn't get that opportunity yeah. to be able to articulate where the processes were failing our people and particularly our injured veterans. Yeah. And so for me, it was that purpose through, you know, I was given a platform and I could find my voice to help other people that I knew would make make positive changes to processes that in the end would actually save lives. Yeah, fantastic. And hence, and that's really where your businesses come from, yeah, like that ability to give back and and make a difference yeah. to others, yeah? I think often we underestimate our own ability as individuals. We think we can't change large industries, but, you know, our voice, if we get cheaper away chip away at it and we have that courage to at least share our ideas you never know it might be just this tidal wave of change that that goes on to be something quite massive and and now I'm very fortunate yeah I mean and you see that um, you see that today more so than ever really like I I think of all the Mm. big changes that are happening at the moment they're all happening at grassroots and then and going up they're not happening at the bloody top and coming down down. yeah it is all about people I agree with you like finding their voice and I do like I, I love you you've got a whole angle around like fearlessness and living fearlessly what 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 does that mean to you and how how do you think in particular it pertains to women I think it's you know accepting that it's not living without fear it's accepting that there's fear but finding the courage yourself to to find a way and push through and give ourselves permission to just have a crack is my (laughs) terminology like just have a go at those new things push ourselves outside those comfort zones and you know, you, we will surprise ourselves often about what we can achieve because mm. I think we set boundaries and limitations of what we think we're capable of. Life evolves and, you know, if we, we have that courage to pursue where it takes us, uh, we can surprise ourselves. And what's one thing that you can tell women today about how to become a better leader? Um, oh, lots of things jump to mind, <laughs> but probably the biggest advice is to to open that dialogue with your people. I see too many leaders that are afraid of actually going and talking with their team. I think it's probably that authenticity, open lines of communication, and really get to know your people. Show them that you care, and that will send you, you know, step you apart from most other leaders. Yeah. What's one thing that you could tell women right now about how they could live life fearlessly? I think um, trust your gut instincts mm-hmm. and don't be afraid of having a go. You know, failure yeah. is a great thing. I think we all are raised to fear failure. I think if we can mindset shift on that, just have a crack and you'll be surprised with what you achieve. Great advice, Maddie. Thanks so much for being with us today, Maddie. You've been fantastic. Oh, thanks, Mel. It's been an absolute delight. What a life Maddie has led. She is just fearlessness in spades, isn't she? Thanks for listening today. Please rate and review as we love your feedback and don't forget to subscribe to Finding Fearless with Marie Claire so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.